Welcome friends. Today I come to you with another quest story. You get to meet my friend Nancy, who surprised me with her travels and adventures. Something I didn't know about, she did. At least not to this extent that she shares with me in this interview. And I had the pleasure of sitting down with her at her beautiful home here, just right around the corner from where I live. And her house is filled with memories from the places that she has seen. Listen carefully and you'll notice how traveling as remotely as Kenya and Indonesia has changed her and has made her a more mindful and resourceful person. She didn't just learn about the world, but also learned about herself and her culture. She has faced many struggles, which she alludes to only briefly. But what fascinates me about Nancy is that she is not shy. And she goes out there and she tries and she experiments. As a former coach and career counselor, Nancy understands the importance of change. And you can tell she's moving right along with it. She took quite a few risks in her early years, which has shaped her to become an open-minded person who doesn't get caught up in every trend, but looks at life from a much bigger perspective. I hope you enjoy my wide-ranging conversation with Nancy as much as I did. And you'll notice we jump right in as I turn the recorder on, as I sometimes do, because we sit down and we get to talking. So you'll find yourself right in the middle of our conversation. Enjoy, and I'll talk to you soon. Much love. So you're more of the in-person person. Yeah. Yeah. There's value to that, I think. Absolutely. I think there's more value to that because we've been separated so far mm-hmm. by the technology. And I find, I think meetups are an, an example of people wanting to get back to togetherness with people. I totally agree. Because tech just doesn't satisfy us. I, I can't understand the mentality of just standing in line all night for the next toy without looking at what is behind it. Right. I'm a Virgo and I'm an Aries rising, which means I've got to know stuff. <laughs> All right, well, okay. I'm going to do a formal introduction. Okay. Welcome, Nancy. Thank you for hosting this interview here at your beautiful home, just a few minutes from my house. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I'm happy to be here, and I look forward to see where this conversation takes us. Me too. You mentioned EFT. Mm-hmm. How did you get started with this? Well, it's interesting. Um, I got started with it. The earliest was about 20 years ago. I had just moved to Oakland. And a friend from San Francisco called up and said, Nancy, there's this really interesting sounding program going on in Oakland. Do you want to go? Let's go. And so we did. And we left before it was over. And we came out thinking, what kind of craziness is this? It's too complicated. It's cumbersome. I don't understand it. So that was the end. Then, many years passed, <laughs> I, um, I had been traveling a lot until my fr- a friend died in 2007. And after that, I began to just, um, I did a- other things. I focused on gardening and a lot of other stuff. But I came to a point where I felt like I really needed to get back into some kind of situation that allowed me to interact more with people and doing something I liked and making a contribution of some kind Mm -hmm. and not just sitting here at my house. Mm -hmm. And so um, 
I was watching something online one day and this series of videos started. And I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. And she was talking about, not about EFT directly, but about how to coach people into health many ways. Mm -hmm. And I listened to her whole thing and there were like four, four sessions and I got very excited. Because I thought it really connects back to what I used to do. And what I, I've, I've done many, many things. <laughs> I've done everything there is. So one of the things I used to do was career coaching because and career development because I'd, been, I'd had every kind of career I could. But I also had been a training manager in a mortgage insurance company. Mm-hmm. And I thought that this coaching thing sounded like it fit, fit really well with that. And I um, paced back and forth before I decided to pay the fee. Uh, but I took the program, and that's where I got started. Now, it's an excellent program. She was an engineer who who got sick of doing sales of fancy electronics and stuff. I got into it, and I I liked it, but by the time it ended, and it was a couple of years, I realized this was so much her and her material wasn't that I wasn't familiar with the material or that I didn't understand it. It was just my mind couldn't fit into the energy engineering mind that put it together. Mm-hmm. So I got a little sort of non-interested in it. And, but in it, I met one of the people that I was the first in-house person that I practiced coaching with, with the program, became my a friend and we're still friends and at the end of that she was feeling kind of the same way so she referred me to a course that was coming up by somebody she knew and had studied and gotten certified in the standard EFT this woman had been teaching it for 20 or 30 years she had been certified in that system but this woman named Valerie Liss had taught her and she had come to the conclusion after teaching all these years that there was a better way to do it mm-hmm. that was not so verbal. And that was the thing that really got me about the other program, mm-hmm. was just too many words. And, and what I mean by that is if you're, you've got a person who's in a feeling and you want to know where they feel it in their body, and then you start talking to them while they're tapping and you're creating all these words for them to hear and relate to. And I just I could not do that. I had this intuitive feeling that the words were in the way somehow. And so we come along to to Valerie's program, and uh, when I went to the first Zoom meeting with that, that's what I said. I said, I am here because I understand you don't use all those words. (laughs) And that's the reason most of us are in this program, because we feel, and she's really fabulous, and she's helped me through many uh, things in the last couple of years since I've been with that. And I just see the validity of it. It's very fast. It's very complete. And it lasts longer. Do you want to explain a little bit what you actually do? Tapping? Sure. It's based on the um, early Chinese medicine uh, on meridians. And we actually are now able to see these meridians on computer. They've found some way that they can give you something that causes them to show up. Uh So what we do is we tap on points of those and this is interesting to me because it stops negativity but doesn't interfere with positivity 
And we don't know why, but we just know that it does that. And so you ask a, a client, uh, what are you wanting to work on? How do you feel? Have you got, are, you, are you feeling something? Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm really angry about X. Okay, let's tap. Oh, no, well, first we ask them what, how intense it is, like from a 1 to a 10, 10 being most intense, and where they feel it in their body. And where they feel it in their body is also an indication of what else is going on. So we just start tapping. And you do the tapping in different places of the body? Where you do it, we, ha- we use particular tapping points. Mm-hmm. There's one at the he- crown of the head, then one at the inside of the eyebrow, uh-huh. one just on the outside of the eyebrow at the temple, one right under the center of the eye at the top of the cheekbone, uh-huh. under the nose, under the lips, the collarbone. Yeah, there's a soft spot there, about three inches down and three or four inches over. Mm-hmm. And then one right here that's at the bra line for women. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a different way of explaining it to men. I haven't had any men clients, so I haven't learned that one. But um, So we just tap on those until the feeling subsides. And we watch the client very closely while they're doing this to see if we notice a shift in the way their facial expression, the tone of their voice. And if we see something that's pretty dramatic or clearly obvious, we ask them to stop and say, what happened? Where is the intensity now? Is it still in your stomach or your wherever? And if it is, it's okay, I'm down to a seven now. I'll keep, let's keep tapping. Mm-hmm. So we basically want to tap them down to a zero from a 10 or wherever they are, <clears throat> what we call the sweet spot, which is six to 10 in intensity. Mm-hmm. Usually it can, it can disappear very quickly. It's amazing the kinds of things that come to the surface when, and the emotions that get intense when you come just into an allowance of it to happen. So we can deal with everything from grief and self-sabotage and procrastination and all the all the emotions and illnesses and and just a lot of the allergies all kinds of things. Do you use tapping yourself for I yourself? I do. We have to do it on ourselves. Yeah. Uh, because in the learning we tap with each other in groups. Oh, and the teacher is, is you know saying okay we're going to talk. Has anybody got an, something they'd like to work on? And somebody says, yeah, I've got, I'm angry at my dad. And say, okay, everybody, let's tap. And I have to say that um, I was going through something very serious about a two, a two years ago. I had been under mind control. I knew it, but I didn't, couldn't do anything about it. And after spending a weekend with this group in a training session, tapping with 25 people, two full days, I came out of mind control. So anytime we're, we're, we're working with anything, it can also trigger something in us. So we, we do it on ourselves pretty daily just to keep our neutrality about things. Right. You know, yeah. It's really quite exciting when you realize the effects you can have with people to resolve things that they've never been able to resolve. The words don't resolve it. We do use words but they're very specifically used for, for certain things. So I'm your client, I'm due to tapping, but you basically are there with me yes. saying specific words that help me. Only under certain circumstances. Uh. Otherwise, we're just tapping. The emotion is where the response comes. The emotion is where the healing is. 
Right. So if you're just saying, I'm, I'm really angry, I don't need to know what it's about at all. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, I really don't care to. Mm-hmm. If there is a situation where I, I'm not good enough about anything and this affects uh, you a lot, we have certain ways that we use words that will take you to both ends of the spectrum of that feeling mm-hmm. until we ne- neutralize it. Mm-hmm. And that's called worst-case scenarios. So we develop, we have uh, cl- guided v- visualizations, we have uh, ex- exaggerated phrases. Okay. There are two or three other categories of things. Mm-hmm. And if you're working with allergies and illnesses, we can have you do things for aluminum, for example. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be wrapping food in aluminum foil example Mm. it's got a very negative impact on us especially when it's heated Mm. so we would have you take a piece of of aluminum foil a a magnet and another uh i think it's just a piece of like a a paper towel i'll I'll have to double check to be sure i'm right Mm -hmm. on that but you just hold that for 30 seconds Hmm. And it diminishes the impact of the metal. Uh-huh. So there's just lots of ways of using it. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I've decided that I don't want to be a practitioner. I decided that in the earlier coaching experience. Getting into people's serious stuff internally is not where I feel is my strongest point, and it's not really where I want to go. So I'm just becoming trained to be a trainer of people who want to be practitioners mm. and a mentor. So that's much more in my line. It fits with my training and my career counseling and all that. So Yeah. Yeah, I know you have given me some advice and helped me, given me some great feedback on my speeches oh, and okay. sent me some valuable resources. So I have seen that coaching skill in you. I, oh, think, I think that's good. really where your strong side is. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And that. that's, I think I see you when you helping me and giving me advice that I see you lighten up I think it sounds mm-hmm. like that's what you really enjoy it is and and it's where I realized that, that I have an intuition about it I, I feel I feel the energies yeah yeah so the next step is to teach others well the it's unfolding in a different way than usual because the person who's running this program it's her business Mm. And she's the one, and this is one other reason I love it, to tell you the truth, because she's the one who's planning the launches. She's the one who's doing all the marketing issue stuff. And all we have to do is put our bios on her website and what we're good at. And when all the people in the world call her, they get to choose who they want to work with Mm. from our bios and what what we put there. And um, we can also do our own specialty workshops of any kind and just do them ourselves uh, on Zoom whenever we want to. Oh. My friend Jennifer and I kind of also would like to to do some in person. She lives in Tennessee, so we'd both have to travel to places. But, for example, after one conference, I met a woman who was a nurse in a Michigan town, and she was wanting to do something like this for her nurses in that town. Yeah. And so we we could do it on Zoom, but we might want to go there. I think there's there's just another level of richness that comes when you're in in a room with people. Mm-hmm. So good. What other things are you working on right now? I know in the past you've told me you've traveled a lot. 
I did. I'm not now. Not now. I, I really stopped when my friend died. How I, long is that ago? She was uh, 2007. Okay. And our last trip, we took two trips, four days apart. She wanted to go to Oaxaca, mm. in Mexico, mm. and I'd always wanted to go there. We came back for four days, and then we went to, um, through Dubai to Jordan wow. to go to Petra. That was one amazing trip. I loved that place. So she was it your was travel fun. companion. Yes. We, we knew each other in college. We actually met. There was a place in San Francisco. We had lost touch decades ago. Right. There was a place in San Francisco called the Sewing Workshop. It was run by a woman named Marcy Tilton, who was just brilliant. She's really a designer, and she had these wonderful classes, and all the designers locally she was connected to, they would come and teach. One day I went to, and I'd heard about this, and I went to an open house, and I heard this voice, and I thought, I know that voice. And then I saw where it was coming from. I thought, yeah, I know her from somewhere. But she kept talking to other people, and I waited until she wasn't. And I went up, and I said, I think we know each other. She said, yes, we do. It was a long time ago, UCLA. We lived in the same dorm. Mm-hmm. It turns out that we still loved all the same things. We love food. We love traveling. We like clothes and sewing and knitting and color and all that stuff. Wow. And so we started traveling. Uh, I think I started it. I knew that she was doing it. And I called her up one day and said, you interested in going to the uh, Gauguin show in Philadelphia? <laughs> she said, yeah. So we ended up going to New York and going to the Met and all those places. We saw my aunt there, went to Washington. And so we just started doing that kind of thing for, I mean, we went a lot of places. Wow. It was really great. But I was beginning to tire of it. If she hadn't died, we probably, I probably would have stopped traveling as much anyway because we had very different orientations. My orientation is a little more uh, spiritual. Hers was just shopping. I got a lot of what I have here, furniture and things, that were just what I needed. But once I had everything I needed, I didn't want to go shopping anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't like to shop for fun. I really don't. Mm-hmm. And uh, then she, she got uh, lung cancer. Mm-hmm. And... I asked her one day, I said, I'd like to know one day when you feel up to it, what your process is, is like. And she looked at me blankly. She had no clue what I was talking about. And this I was just beginning to feel it was too shallow for me. You know, I loved her and we had a wonderful time, but it was time for me to, to shift gears again. Mm-hmm. And we sure did shift gears again. But the interesting thing to me is that you guys went to very interesting places. We absolutely did. You didn't go to just Vegas and New York, which are typical shopping meccas. I mean, you went to very historical places. Yes. So you did sightseeing. We did sightseeing, but yes, it was a deeper version. I had traveled before that. I traveled my whole life, really, as soon as I got out of college. I was at UCLA majoring in home ec, thinking uh, and the fashion end of it. I've been sewing since I was eight or nine years old. Oh, wow. And so that was like uh, my, I thought I would major in that, UCLA. It turned out to be such a bad program. It was their, part of their home ec program. And it was so bad that they closed it down the, uh, the year after I started. But what I really, so then I, I got to partying a little too much. Ooh. And I, I got on probation. <gasps> oh, wow. Which, which just about killed my dad. He was furious at me. 
but but so I took classes that I knew I could get good grades in, like music appreciation, which has been my love since it, since I was a kid. I wanted to play piano, mm-hmm. and I wanted to design dresses, and I designed paper dolls' clothes all day long. My dad didn't like the piano, and he didn't want me to have one. Mm-hmm. It took a long time, and finally my mother said, okay, we can get you a rental piano. I risked divorce to get your dad to agree to this, so you can't play it while he's here. So, okay. so <laughs> Why didn't he want you to play piano? He didn't like it. And I think later what I realized was his sister was playing the piano, and it was in the days when all they taught you was scales. And her piano was always out of tune. And she was playing scales all day on an out-of-tune piano. I could forgive him. Mm. <laughs> I can probably, too. Just imagine. It took me a while. But when I got to, so I, I took this class in music appreciation, and I, I heard that the instructor was an assistant. It wasn't the professor. But he was playing the Chopin etudes. And I heard two notes and went, I have to do this. I have to major in music. It's what I've always loved. Right? Wow. So I went to his office and um, sat down and told him what I wanted and why. And he said, okay, um, here's some music. I'm going to open it up. And I, this is the note to start on. And just sight, sing, sight read this. And I didn't even know what that meant. But I figured, well, the notes are going up and down. I guess I better go up and down. And <laughs> I got through a few measures. He said, that's perfect. Okay, I, you can do that. You can change to your major. And I went, how did I do that? <laughs> Who knows? So I ended up as a music major. Yeah. And then I had a course that I ran into called Musical Cultures of the World. Mm. And I had an extra free course to take that semester. So I took that. And the professor who was teaching was named Mantle Hood, which is kind of <laughs> odd. Interesting, and he hadn't begun to do that till he was in his 40s. Mm-hmm. He became the world-renowned person on this subject of ethnomusicology. So I signed up for his class, and he said, well, you can write a term paper, or we have a few musical groups from around the world here at UCLA, and you can join one of those. And I went, well, what do you think I'm going to do? So I went to all of them. We had Chinese, Japanese, Mexican, Persian, Greek, Indonesian, Javasese, and Balinese. I mean, imagine that. That just, that was it for me. And I took the, uh, I got into the Javanese and Balinese to the point where I'd walk in the dorm, I would walk to and from the meals, my room, doing, you know, dancing. And I was taking music, I I studied the music. So I said, okay, I got to go there. So that's what I did. I went there. I went to Australia first. So it was through music that you're traveling. That That's right. You, uh, your love for travel started coming up. Well, that was the trigger, but I had been interested in the world even younger. When I, As soon as I could read, I was sitting around reading books about China and Egypt and India and England and whatever. Wow. And I had a Filipino pen pal when I was 11. <laughs> So yeah, that all just came together. So I went to Australia. I spent nine months there. I worked. I found jobs, and I was. I managed a laundromat once. I was did some stenography. Wow! I sold magazines so I could get to the outback and stuff like that. Was what was the plan? Just to go there and stay there the for a little bit? The plan was just to go there. Yeah, I was with uh, and I had an English roommate at the time, and she wanted to go there. So we got on a ship. 
We went there. Wow. Actually, I was on my, we were both on our way to Indonesia, actually. And she got off in Sydney, met some guy at a party while the boat was there, and said, oh, I'm going to stay here. She ended up marrying the guy. I went on to Indonesia. <laughs> oh, I had no idea. You had so yeah. much adventure. Yeah, I did really love the adventure. So I went to Indonesia, and I spent 13 months there, lived in central Java, studied Javanese gamelan. I uh, went to Bali, started studying that. By yourself. You did all this by, by, by yourself yes. as a woman. Yes. And you figured just things out. You know, that's how I spent my whole life, doing what I wanted to do, which is kind of what I see you doing. Maybe that's one of the reasons I, I'm fascinated by how you got here mm -hmm. and stuff. But, yeah, I just wanted to see the world. I stopped off in Japan, you know, on my way somewhere. I, I've lost the sequence at this point. Mm -hmm. but So I spent 13 months in, uh, nine months in Australia, 13 months in Indonesia. Then I came back because the coup was about to break in Indonesia, and people thought we should go home. And I was living in Bali at the time, and the, there were three of us in the village, a woman I knew from UCLA and someone we met there who was studying language, and she and I were studying music. Mm -hmm. And the police came and had us in a meeting and said, we can't promise that we can take care of you because things are getting hot here. So I left. She stayed and had some very horrible experiences with friends being killed in front of her, and we were on the list and all kinds of stuff. It's foreigner. So I came back. I, I um, went to UC, back to UCLA, worked in the ethno department at the music, and, and then decided to join the Foreign Service. Wow. Yes. So I went to Kenya for two years. What did your parents think of that? They, they didn't like it. Oh. They were scared to death. Mm -hmm. You know, I went to Kenya. I, I was, this was a really fun part. I was working in the Institute of Ethnomusicology, UCLA, in the basement. I was taking a class on Africa, East Africa. And I, one of the great advantages of working at the university is you get to take free classes of all kinds during the day and everything. <laughs> so I did. I took mm -hmm. a lot of those. And um, heard one of the best concerts I've ever heard in my life that I'll never forget. Joan Baez and... All those folks, the Carter family and all those people, came for this big conference at UCLA. Mm. And that concert was the epitome of Carter family especially. Mother Maybell was there, and I decided I had to learn to play the thing that she was playing, the auto harp. Anyway, so then I um, take the, took this course on Africa, and I, it was about Kenya. And I'm sitting there thinking, man, i got to go there so badly. I want to go there. I want to go to Kenya. And they were having a trip at the end of the class. It was going to be $3,000, if you can imagine it. And I'm not going to tell you what year it was, but it was a long time ago, mm -hmm. and it was a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And I just I knew I couldn't do it. And then the Foreign Service thing came up. I saw an ad in the papers what happened, and I decided to respond. And they accepted my application, and I was in training for six weeks in D.C., and then I got sent to Kenya. And the irony of it all and the beauty of it for me was when that group came over, I was their hostess. Oh. And I was saying, I live here. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. And um, it's a British society. It, it was still then. I'm not sure about now. But you had to join groups uh, to, to get any place. So I joined mm -hmm. a geological society or something like that. And we went on these camping trips. And I remember going out to North uh, Kenya where the Maasai were. We were camping near a river, 
And in the evening, we were cooking our dinner, and all way off in the distance, I heard these drums. And I thought, oh, my gosh. And I said, I got to go out and not hear you guys talk. I got to go out and just hear those. And they said, don't go too far. Be careful, you know, because we'd had some interesting interactions with some locals there. Mm -hmm. But I'm sitting out there under this big sky with all these stars, and I'm listening to this African music, and I'm thinking... Oh my gosh, I'm in heaven. Mm-hmm. I can just imagine. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so that was great. And then um, I was there for two years. I did a little project. I was invited to uh, do a radio program on American music mm-hmm. on their radio station. I went on TV because the American Women's Society were doing some program and they wanted somebody to go on, and nobody in that group would do it. They called me, I was the secretary to the boss. And they said, would you do it? And I said, yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> wow. Anyway, so, and I started designing clothes with, uh, with African fabrics. And I got articled in the newspapers and stuff like that. So you combined, what I see, all your skills. The all my sewing, things I loved, yeah. All the things that, yeah, that you loved. Music, travel, kind of all combined it. My Kenya uh, thing was about to finish. It was two years. The desk officer from Washington came. He was a very interesting guy. He was a black man who uh, eventually became the, uh, the ambassador to Nigeria. But he was the desk officer for Kenya at the time. And my first boss was fabulous. So I ended up in this great living condition with a little cottage with a swimming pool and a, a, a creek at the bottom and stuff. And it was a place called Happy Valley, which there was a movie made about when the British were there. Mm-hmm about Happy Valley. And then my boss left, his tour finished, and I got a new guy who was one of these green eyeshade guys who would go through the 18-volume manual on operations and go telling everybody what they were doing wrong. (laughs) And he didn't like me, so he had written to Washington saying, I want somebody else here. (gasps) I didn't know that. So the desk officer comes out. He says, "Uh, how'd you feel about the letter your boss wrote? I said, what letter? He said, he didn't get a, give you a copy of the letter he wrote that's saying he didn't want you to work with him anymore? He said, no. He said, oh, that's interesting. And I said, no, I was going to quit because uh, I really don't like this. He said, well, I've got an offer for you. How would you like to go back to Indonesia? I said, damn you. <laughs> <laughs> and I accepted the offer, so I went back to Indonesia and worked in the embassy for wow. another couple of years. And then I came back. I think that was the end of that phase. And that's when I I met Laurel at the sewing workshop, and we started traveling and went to, oh, I don't know, France and England and Italy and Jordan and Mexico. and. What was the most valuable thing you've gained, knowledge-wise or skill-wise, during all those travels? I just found the whole world, this whole the whole thing of experience in the world, as incredibly edifying and expanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, we moved a lot when I was a kid, so I learned very early to adjust to different places and things and people, and so I developed my resourcefulness. I just learned more about myself. I remember in Australia going to a party and someone saying, oh, you're American, eh? <laughs> you know, I said, yeah. I said, well, and I thought, what does that mean? It was the first time I... Uh, became objective about my being an American. What does that mean? Hmm, wonder what it means to other people, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just, it was um, 
so educational, so much fun, so exciting just to be a part of another culture, learn the language, which I did for the most part. I tried to. I spoke Indonesian pretty fluently by the time I got home. I tried to study Swahili, but that was really a tough one. It was almost as hard as Arabic and Chinese and mm -hmm. Japanese. I feel that it, it gave me a much broader perspective on everything in life, which is, and I'm going to say this, I'm finding in our current global situation that there is a great deal of judgment and assumption and stuff happening when people know nothing, really. Mm -hmm. And that for me, I just look at it as, wow, that's interesting. I wonder how that's going to go. What's behind that? Where did this come from? Mm -hmm. So I've, I have a much more neutral position about most of what's going on now than most people do, and I find that it makes your community much smaller than it might normally. Mm -hmm. The thing you said about when you questioned your American, mm -hmm. you being American, the same happened to me. I think uh -huh. I didn't reflect on being a German until I left Germany. Right. That's yeah, when well, you there's no reason to. There's no reason to. You're always amongst Germans yeah. and in your country. And then when I was here, suddenly I realized all the stereotypes people were telling me about Germany. And I never thought about what it means to be German until... I came here. Mm -hmm. But I agree. I mean, as an as a foreigner, having traveled and now living here, it's one thing to know the history about a country, but it's another thing to actually have lived there, yes. know the people from there, how yes. the people think. Yes. It's it's two different things. It is. And there's another thing and I this is usually how I respond to people who think they know is I kind of take it as I'm looking at a widescreen 3D movie that's not finished yet. Mm. And you know, we don't know what we don't know. And I find people saying, it's this. And there's so much we don't know. Let's go there instead of assuming that we do know. What's your biggest concern right now as in the time we're living? Because... I am constantly looking at the biggest picture I can find. Mm -hmm. I find it exciting and interesting and very hopeful. Why? Because I see that there are things going on that people can't see. And I learn this from people who come from there or have been there or who know about it. And... There's, there's a great need. Our, our history as a planet, and I'm, by the way, also very interested in outer space and, and all of that. So if you look at that bigger picture. That's a really big picture. It's a really big picture, <laughs> which has a lot to tell us. Yeah. Uh, just as an example of climate change, it isn't about carbon. It's about the whole galaxy, which goes through this every periodically mm -hmm. and the whole galaxy is going through it and we're going through it and what concerns me is just things like climate change has become a huge issue that we are causing it because of all the carbon we have to reduce the carbon and I say to people do you understand that trees breathe carbon 
they need it for life. So do we. They expel oxygen for us to breathe. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make sense to get to, to reduce the carbon to the amount that it's not the reason. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I, I get concerned when people have such strong ideas about things that they really don't know that much about and that are dangerous. The lopsidedness of the, of the thinking is concerning. Mm. that people had seemed to have lost how to think for themselves. But and you think uh, great things are coming? Absolutely. What makes you think that? I see evidence of it from people who have it. And because what, where I was starting to go, the history of our planet, we were intended to be an avatar planet where we went to other galaxies and stuff and, tr and helped people become avatars mm -hmm. we got hijacked by bad races from other planets hundreds of thousands of years ago and we are the last planet that has been either destroyed by or overcome that taking over and that's part of our battle now is a is a galactic one hmm. and there is a team of people called the alliance that are made up of Americans who are in the military and also Pleiadians, Arcturians, Alpha Centaurians, and many others that are helping us now because we have indicated we're in trouble, the planet's in trouble, economically, socially, culturally, in many ways. And so we have now indicated in great enough numbers, and this is... This is tested by global meditations that take place periodically and stuff. We have given it clear enough sign that we are heading in a different direction ourselves or want help, and so they are now helping us. Where do you read this information, or where do you... I, I have a group of friends who are in this same arena, mm -hmm. and we exchange the information that we get. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a, a lot of us who've, who, some still are, I haven't been for a while, going out at night to, to uh, interact with mm. uh, people on spaceships and mm. stuff. I have worked in government, and I know that it is a swamp, mm. and it needs to be cleaned out. Does this, has this changed your way of living, in a way, Does knowing this? Uh, it has, yes. I pay attention to these things. What it also does is make you realize how much, how important it is to live in the moment. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? Well, I try not to think too much about the past, and I don't anticipate the future because we don't know what's going to happen. And I'm very much into, we create our own reality by the things we think. Mm -hmm. which turns into reality. Do you have certain practices, things that you do daily that help you stay in the moment? I have trouble doing anything daily because I'm a creative type. <laughs> But I do them as often as I can. <laughs> like what? Uh, one of the things I grew up doing was manifesting. Mm. And I didn't know I was doing it. But it was just, oh, I want to do that. Well, I can just tell by what you told me with the trips. Yes, yes. You'd set your mind, like the Kenya thing, you had set your mind on Kenya. It didn't work out with that group, but it worked out another way. Yeah. And that happened to me my whole life. Well, Until a couple of years ago. It had to do with the mind control thing I mentioned. But it's taken some time to forgive myself, to understand what I did and why and how. 
and how it just almost destroyed me and my whole life. And again, tapping has helped a lot. I listen to I am affirmations constantly before I go to sleep, when I get up. Mm -hmm. If I catch myself in a negative thought, I turn it around. I eat well. I can't do exercise right now because of my eye. I have to wait a little bit on that. Mm -hmm. It's it's like recognizing that everything is in the present. It's only now that exists. Those others are just thoughts and memories, which are kinds of thoughts. To me, it ties into thinking for yourself instead of listening to what everybody's telling you is true and asking the question, is it really? And looking for yourself and then knowing how to guide yourself within that mm -hmm. yeah i think controlling our thoughts is very big it's important for me too absolutely because our thoughts can just run us they and they can. can run us downhill they can it's very and, fast and sometimes that's part of a larger process mm -hmm. on purpose mm -hmm. which is all for me a help in knowing how i'm not gonna go there we have to control it we have to absolutely control it yeah It's definitely a daily thing. So affirmations you found have helped you? The key is, and it's all these other things I've done, which has made me realize that as children, we absorb things energetically. And the things that we feel are bad or scary go into the subconscious. Those are the things that become our internal controllers mm -hmm. as we grow up. So reprogramming the subconscious is what's required Because if not, those negative thoughts are going to keep coming up and, and you're going to keep acting on the patterns that you got when you were a child that you couldn't verbalize, mm -hmm. but you could feel it. It also has to do with your families and your tribe and what their belief systems are. If your family is saying, well, those are rich people and they're bad and we don't, you know, we're, we're the good people, and you go out and get a job that gives you, makes you rich, You're not gonna. You're gonna be rejected by your family. You're gonna have problems with it. Mm -hmm. So that's a lot of what we work with in this work as well. Right. Come full circle. Yeah, we came full circle. So yeah. So what would be to bring it full circle? Last piece of advice or recommendation for people today to guide them in their daily lives. I think people need to know that they are part of something much larger than they realize. And that the most important thing is to trust your own self, but you have to know what that is. So self-exploration is what's absolutely critical. Yep. Awesome, that's why I have quest for you, my, my mission, <laughs> find back to yourself. Yeah. Very important. Well, thank you so much, Nancy. Well, it's my pleasure. We've had very wide range We of did. stuff covered here, so it'll be interesting to find out what your podcast turns out to. It will be great. Thank you for your time. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much.